I believe in Christ, he is my king. With all my heart to him I'll sing. I'll raise my voice in praise and joy, in grand amens my tongue employ. Scriptures reveal the divine desires of the Lord in our behalf. Each of us should have a burning desire to search the scriptures diligently and daily to seek the will of the Lord in our life. Brothers and sisters, on very thin pages, thick with meaning, are some almost hidden scriptures. Hence we are urged to search, feast, and ponder. If you are lonely, please know you can find comfort. If you are discouraged, please know you can find hope. If you are poor in spirit, please know you can be strengthened. If you feel you are broken, please know you can be mended. Welcome to Go and Do. This week we cover Alma chapters 13 through 16. We'll be talking a little bit about the doctrine of the priesthood as well as what it means to enter into the rest of the Lord. Some of the events in these chapters lead us to discuss why bad things happen to good people sometimes and why God may not prevent tragedy from occurring. Uh, This week we're joined by my friend Brian Hart and we hope you enjoy it. Thanks. It's interesting how these chapters are kind of broken up. Like this chapter 13, there's a little bit of the story here, but mostly it's like all of a sudden we start talking talking doctrine about the priesthood and why it exists and, and how we should approach the priesthood. Like it's this little nugget of, of doctrine in the middle of this kind of story about Alma and Amulek and, and Zizram and stuff. I find it interesting that because when i started verse 13 chapter 13 i had to figure out where we where are we in the story and so i read chapter 12 in preparation to jump back into 13 and Mm -hmm. i really liked uh, alma chapter 12 verse 8 where he says and caesarum began to inquire of them diligently that he might know more concerning the kingdom of god and he said unto Alma, what does this mean, what Amulek has said? And then Alma begins to kind of just reiterate and explain and kind of get, they're, they're getting much deeper into the principles and in, in the plan of salvation. And then in verse 13, he's kind of explaining the priesthood and the authority of God, where it comes from, and how God chooses to uh, ordain people, send messengers, and, and explain and, and then uh, kind of his plan to take care of his children throughout all the dispensations, you know, and provide opportunity. Yeah, it definitely was. I jumped right into 13 and thought, okay, I'm lost here because it's not coinciding with uh, some other things I was reading. I thought, I thought that we were going to go to the next story because, you know, 14 is like, you know, a very specific story that everyone remembers right. and 13 is kind of like this this great sermon about priesthood and where we we came from and all these coordination that's kind of like stuck in between these cool like very visceral stories that are easy to 
to visionize in your head or when they see the videos of them. Yeah, I think of like when when Mormon was trying to organize this, you know, as he's abridging everything and he's like, where do I put this chapter, you know? Like, where's a good place to put this? And he's, it almost <laughs> feels like he's kind of like, ah, this is a good spot, you know? <laughs> about uh, these people of Nehor, we're talking about these people that are kind of corrupting the ways of the Lord, that are kind of twisting things about authority. And before we get into this huge monumental thing with Alma and Amulek breaking out of the prison, you know, let's let's put, how were they able to do that? Let's put this section about the priesthood. This is how they were able to do that. Right? Yeah. They had the priesthood, but more importantly, they had, they were worthy of it, which is, I think, what we're really getting at here isn't so much the priesthood makes you be able to do stuff, but really your worthiness and your mindset in life makes you worthy to use the priesthood and have it be effectuated for you. You know what I mean? Like a lot of the, a lot of the qualifying things, whether you hold the priesthood or not, if you, if you are living the right kind of lifestyle and if you are, are, are trying to do your best to follow God, the priesthood will be useful for you. Right. Yeah, I, I like um, in chapter 13, verse 3, where Alma kind of explains that they were prepared from the foundation of the world to the foreknowledge of God on account of their exceeding faith and good works in the first place being left to choose good and evil. Therefore, they haven't chosen good. And I really like that part because it kind of explains that Florida nation still requires you to use your agency. It isn't a guarantee. It isn't a, a kind of like um, a predetermined fate type of scenario. That they he knew that they were going to choose good. He but but that doesn't exclude the fact that they have to go and then choose good. They have to go perform and act. And then in verse six, towards the end, it says, "And they were ordained unto the high priesthood of the holy order of God." to teach his commandments unto the children of men, that they also might enter into his rest. So now you see that there's something introduced now that says you are no longer just responsible for yourself. You are now given responsibility for others, to teach others, to guide others, to help others. Um, and I think that's one of, when I think about one of the differences between the Aaronic priesthood and the Merkezic priesthood, the Aaronic tends to the, temporal aspects of the church and the temporal welfare of others. And then Melchizedek is more to hold keys and responsibility over the spiritual aspects. You know, and, and I think, you know, that's something that, that's one of the plain precious truths that the Book of Mormon, especially in this chapter, it starts to uh, explain that we don't hear very much of in, well, we hear some, but not as clearly in the Bible, as, as we do here in the Book of Mormon, about the Melchizedek priesthood and why it came about and why it was called the Melchizedek priesthood, too. Yeah. I mean, we're looking at, I think it said 82 BC is roughly when this is happening. And yeah. they're talking about Melchizedek. You know, like that's thousands of years later, potentially, and they're in a continent away. And they're talking about Melchizedek. So it's it's clear to see that this was something that this was knowledge that was passed down. 
but also that, you know, that concept of the Lord is and the gospel are the same yesterday, today, and forever. It doesn't change. You know, his his plan is the same. We we might change how we interact with that plan, but that plan does not change. I was going to say it's interesting too because it is, from what I could find, the only time they even talk about Melchizedek in the Book of Mormon. Yeah, like, this is it. Like he played such a big role in the things that happened, but there's you know it it's ama- it, it makes you wonder like why was this here? I think that's what it is. It's like to show that the idea that these things don't stop, like it, it's a continuum of the priesthood authority. It started before we were here, it continued before, and regardless of the fact that they're continents away from each other, this idea that this priesthood authority didn't just stay back with them, it continues to go and will continue to go forever. Yeah. Yeah, I like I like in verse 13 where Alma gives us specific counsel to us, which is, you know, to them there in that time, but to us now that we're reading it, he says, and now, my brethren, I would that you would humble yourselves before God and bring forth fruits, meet for repentance, that ye may also enter into his to that rest. Yea, humble yourselves, even as the people in the days of Melchizedek. And then in a few verses, he goes to talk about, um, in 17, who Melchizedek was. He was a king over the land of Salem. And his people had waxed strong in iniquity and abomination. And it's interesting he uses this example with these people because that's exactly what he's kind of combating with them at this time. He, he, he comes to talk to them and they have these lawyers and these methods of gaining, um, uh, I don't know, um, money and, 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 and arguing and, and things. And so they, they have also waxed strong. But... But what I what really I what I thought when I read this was it's interesting that overall this is a story of redemption. It's a story of change. It's a story of how one man with knowledge and authority could go and help and teach others who were ignorant or purposely had left the righteous path and he stirred in them because of his seal and desire and hard work and example. He stirred in them a desire to come back to the fold, to come back and change. And that's kind of the same thing Alma's doing, following Melchizedek's footsteps. And you think about us as priesthood holders, how should then we approach our assignments? You know, are we in a in a ward that's similar to the land of Salem, where people have waxed strong? No, I mean that's kind of harsh, right? We don't, you know, but but sometimes we you know, even with simple things like our assignments to minister, it's very easy to minister to the one who is more compatible to the way we think or, or our lifestyle or or it's really easy to get along. And it's very hard to minister to the one we can't get a hold of very much. They seem busy. And if we use Alma's example or in Melchizedek's example, we should be doubling our efforts. We shouldn't give up and we shouldn't write people off. Because that's our responsibility to to act as Christ and as his uh, prophets and, and leaders. Yeah, I think in verse 10, um, because we, we have this idea that um, either we have to be perfect to carry the priesthood or we have the, we hold these people to 
uh, an unreasonable standard that, well, if you're a priesthood holder, if you're a leader in the church, then you can't make mistakes, and you you have to you have to always do what's right. And in verse ten, he's kind of explaining it was account on account of their exceeding faith and repentance and their righteousness before God, they choosing to repent and work righteousness rather than to perish. And therefore, they were called after this holy order and were sanctified, and their garments were washed white through the blood of the Lamb. He's saying these. These people just wanted to do better. They just wanted to try their best. They just wanted to be repentant. And that's not something that happens once, and then you're sanctified in the blood of the Lamb, and then you're good for life, right? This is a this is a lifestyle of, I'm trying to be better, I'm trying to repent. That's what qualifies you for a lot of this, right? Just trying to, to be a better person all the time, and recognizing your faults, and then repenting again, and having that faith. And... I think that that's really important because a lot of times, um, you know, you hold yourself, either you hold yourself to a high standard and you get really frustrated when you, when you can't move forward or you feel that other people might judge you based on decisions or actions that you've made. And you just need to remember, look, as long as you're on that repentant path, you're doing the right stuff. You know, as long as you're trying to little by little be a little bit better every day, then that's, that's all the Lord is asking of you. Yeah, and it's it's really easy that once you get, you know, this all the knowledge that you have, and you know, we as I think members of the the church, we look at what we're doing, and we know the standard we're supposed to be living by, and so we look around and see the standard everyone else is supposed to be living by, and it's easy to start thinking, well, are they really living to that standard? And then to think, am I living to that standard? And you know, that's not what this is about. It's it's about a very a personal thing. And it's, you know, I love the plainness sometimes in how Alma puts things. Like when you look at 20, he kind of gets to the point where he's like, I don't need to rehearse this anymore. What I've said, it will suffice. And that's, you know, the the, the plainness of the scripture sometimes we, we get so bogged down in making sure that we're hitting everything perfectly every time. You, there's another scripture back in second Nephi where he basically says the same thing. Like I've already said it. Like if you need to hear it again, go back and read it again, but I'm not going to dwell on this anymore. Like just be better and move on. And that's the thing we, we know to do better, but we have a hard time moving on and continuing. I, I think it's, it's really interesting. 23 and they remain made known unto us in plain terms that we may understand that we can, that we cannot err. And this because of our, our being wanderers in a strange land. You picture this this moral life, you know, that there's so much that we're learning and so much that we don't know and new experiences that we're having that we are kind of like, if you've ever been to a foreign country, especially where you don't speak the language very well, um, <laughs> it kind of feels like that, where you're like, I'm just trying to figure this out as I go. And a lot of times I think life feels that way. I'm just trying to figure this out as I go. I might make some good decisions. I might make some decisions. I look back and I'm like, well, that was a bad decision, but I learned a lot from it, you know? And I think that that's kind of what he's saying, you know, as long as you're trying to do the good stuff, as long as you're trying to, to stay on the path, um, even if you're a wanderer in a strange land, you'll, you'll find your way. There's, there's also, I noticed uh, there were quite a few times where it mentions the phrase, were highly favored or highly favored of the Lord, that these individuals that were preordained were highly favored. And it's interesting because 
when I first, a long time ago, you know, when I was younger, um, when I first read these things, Highly Favored seemed to me like an exclusive club. Um, like, not fair. I wish I was highly favored or, you know. And then I, when I was reading this, it brought back to mind the scripture in First Nephi chapter 17, verse 35 where it says, Behold, the Lord esteemeth all flesh in one. He that is righteous is favored of God. You know? And and then it goes to explain, you know, uh, why people aren't favored, because they reject the word, they harden their hearts, and, and so on and so forth. And and so if we find ourselves in a situation where we 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 have that desire, I wish to be highly favored of the Lord. And likewise, in, in the Book of Mormon, continuously we hear it, those who keep the commandments prosper in the land, you know, that, that keeping the commandments will, will lead us to prosperity. So if we want to be favored and we want to be pro- prosper, we have to keep the commandments, you know, and it's not we have to keep them once, you know, and cash in our, our favored points and blessings. No, we have to do it with real intent, with a desire to turn our heart to God and to do it forever, to join this path of eternal progression or or, or, or eternal repentance. We could look at it that way. Where we're going to continuously, be, every week, we become a little bit introspective. We find what needs to be adjusted and changed. We take the sacrament and recommit. And that's the pattern the Lord wants for us. You know, a lot of these, especially with Caesarum, he just experienced a mighty change of heart. Well, he's about to, you know, and then he's going to join them and become awesome number three companion here. Um, the third companion to Alma and Amulek in a way. What, is it, what does it mean when it's talking about entering to the rest of the Lord? Because to me, that sounds like you don't have to do anything anymore. And I'm sure that's not what that means, right? Because he's talking about that they'll do stuff so that they can enter into his rest. And it, at first it feels like, oh, when I'm resting, I'm no longer active. I'm no longer engaged. I, I'm finally able to just relax, you know? And I don't think that's what he's getting at. It, I don't know what your guys' thoughts are on that. What does that mean? Well... I, I would think, I think about two quick things. One is baptism, we enter into the way. We enter into the path. We're now planted on the on the discipleship journey. And then in verse 29, it says, Having faith on the Lord, having hope that ye shall receive eternal life, having the love of God always in your heart, that ye may be lifted up at the last day and enter into his rest. And I feel like... The thought that comes to me is um, having your actions, your life being sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise that you have accomplished what you were, that, that the, the Heavenly Father is pleased with your efforts. You know? Yeah, I think to me, it's like you, you think about all the things we're doing and how even in just if you look at just the part that's, you know, gospel related and spiritual related in your life and sometimes like how exhausting it can be pushing towards that next area 
You know, everything we do is built around our, our goal. The one main goal is to return to live with God. That's it. Like everything else we're doing, like it, you, at the end of the day, that's the biggest thing. And so I think about what that will feel like, even though the work doesn't end and it may be easier, maybe harder. It will probably be more fulfilling, but to think like that next phase just feels like it'll be a breath. Be like, oh, okay, now like this part's done. And it doesn't mean like, and like with all things, like when you finish school, like it doesn't mean you're done, like, but there's like that breath of, okay, I can finally like rest from this piece and move yeah. on to the next thing. That's how I kind of read it. That kind of makes sense because it's kind of like, you know, King Benjamin spoke a lot about retaining a remission of your sins. And this kind of sounds like, you know, you're, you're giving these trials to master these principles. There will be a day when you can master these principles and then you can move on to the next, you know, whatever the next part that you need to work on. You, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the other, another thing that I think about the rest is like, when he uses another, that other version of rest in verse 20, W-R-E-S-T, where that's almost like wrestle, you know, it's almost like you're fighting against it. And the other, the, the later rest, the rest of the Lord, R-E-S-T, is almost like you're no longer fighting it. You're no longer like forcing your way into being righteous. Like it's now become more a part of who you are. And so it's not so much of like this, I, I have to constantly remind myself, I have to make sure that I, you know, that I force myself to go to church every Sunday. At that point, it's more just like, yeah, that's what I do now. That's that's who I am. I go to church every Sunday, you know? Or, um, you mean like without compulsory means? And will yeah. this still upon you like the dews of heaven type of scenario? Yeah. Because like, <laughs> no, it is kind of a priesthood chapter, right? Yeah, yeah. you're no longer forcing yourself to, to be righteous. It's more like this is what the Lord wants me to do, and I'm in line with that. It, it becomes that's your natural being at that yeah. point. Yeah, That's just your natural state now. Once you start going to church and start making that a way of your, of life and you don't really even consider not going or or at least you're not like uh crap tomorrow we have to go to church you know it's kind of like no that's well, that's what we do every single sunday um, you know what your like, kids your kids aren't shocked wait we're going to church today you know they they now know that this is the program you know this is what happens it's it's more just a part of your 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 routine your life and then inst instead of being something novel you know it's not just this is what we do it's almost like a path of progression where you have to actively make conscious decisions yeah and make enough of those that they become habits and then you once you 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 have these habits and you you kind of master them take them to the next level it becomes part of your personality and then it becomes more of a reflex as opposed to you have to wrestle with these things every single time. No, I shouldn't do that. I should do this. You know, and after a while, it's you. It's it's. Uh, I was talking to this guy this last week, and he was he was explaining to me, you know, some some better eating habits. 
And I was always, I always confess, oh, but I love pasta. What, what are you talking about? Or I love bread. I love pizza, you know? And, um, and he kind of, I mean, he, he kind of laid out this gospel principle where he said, well, if you're so busy eating good things for you, you won't have time and, and, and you, you know, that, that desire to eat the bad things will kind of diminish. It's not, it's not a tug of war of, I can't do this. I should do that. It's you're so busy doing the good things that there is no time or cravings for the bad things. And it's kind of the same thing. You know, that's a good approach for any addiction recovery or any, any bad habit you're trying to break. It's much better when you replace a bad habit with a good habit instead of just trying to mentally muscle your way into just not doing that and then just sitting in a void. Good cause, right? Yeah. I, I think that also then the challenge after it becomes a habit is to not let it be just reflex, not let it be just habit. Like I go to church, yeah, I walk in, I sit down, I do my three hours, two hours, or now, you know, that we do it in our homes, it's a little different. Um, I, I, that it doesn't just become something that you do without thinking, right? Yeah. Yeah, and it has been an interesting test of like how many things, like from our family's point of view, and I know every ward has been different, but the fact that all of a sudden there is no two-hour church with the, you know, where I live, the, the commute on each end of church as well that prepares you for it. And yeah. all of a sudden that's gone and the activities during the week are gone that you used to have. And the social aspect of not even the social, the spiritual aspect of just being around other people more often that are, you know, having those same things. And what an interesting twist it's been to be like, okay, all of these things that were habit are now gone. What parts of those habits or what parts of have I built in are still, meaningful what's still working and how great it's been to be like oh like all the things that i loved that i don't have about maybe attending worship services worship church services or having the camaraderie around maybe that's not as important as what we're getting through being able to delve a little deeper to ask some deeper questions have a little more personal time to study and prepare and you know going back like how different it's going to be you know to go back and do it different again, back the old way that we did it before. Maybe we'll get more out of it, I hope. Yeah, and I think it's encouraging us to not use our weekly church attendance as a crutch. Well, I don't have to interact with anybody during the week because I'm going to see them all on Sunday. You know, yeah. you know, why don't you make this more integrated into just how you are? You know, make a phone call or text somebody or go visit them. You can do that at any time, right? Instead of having to wait. Oh, I'll see him on Sunday. Well, maybe we ought to be a little bit more engaged with each other during the week, too. You know, right now it's a little difficult because we kind of have to stay away from each other. But <laughs> well, Eddie can't just be like, well, I showed up and, you know, I was on my phone the whole time, you know, yeah. checking sports scores. Or maybe if I was even just looking at nothing, zoning out. It's real hard to do that when it's just you and your spouse and your kids, you know, if you're. <laughs> on ESPN the whole time that you're doing the church service it's gonna be obvious so you're almost a little more engaged too in that definitely the beginning of chapter 14 is also uh, pretty interesting because it, it mentions that there were many of them that did believe the words of Alma and Amulek but 
the more part of them were desirous that they might destroy Alma and Amulek. For they were angry with Alma because of the plainness of his words unto Caesarum. And I find that very interesting because Caesarum is starting to have a change of heart. And it's almost like a group of people are upset in behalf of someone else. And if anything explains Facebook more than that, I don't know what <laughs> does. Okay. But <laughs> well, the idea of being mad at someone in behalf of someone else who's not even really that mad at them. Or, or Caesarum was their, you know, their candidate or their guy. And yeah. you've discredited my guy. I am upset at you. Not, I'm not listening for truth or wanting to understand. And um, and then they, you know, they wanted to kill Alma and Amulek, but decided against it and decided to take them to one of the chief judge. They uh, bound them with strong cords, and then the people went forth and testified against them. Oh, uh, you know, and so it's very much a, even though the process that uh, the judge, the chief judge system was created to avoid corruption. And when it, corruption does creep up, then, you know, the greater judges can judge the lower ones or a lot of lower ones can judge a greater one. They still are facing kind of a corrupt judgment here themselves. But, you know, in the lesson, it, it, it tells us for this part, it says, Alma tells Alma 14 tells of righteous people who suffered and even died because of their beliefs. You might wonder, as many do, why terrible things happen to people who are trying to live righteously. You may not find all the answers to this difficult question in Alma 4, but there is much to learn from the way Alma and Amulek responded to this situation they faced. I thought it was interesting, too, that they they obviously were trying to not be public in what they were doing for whatever reason it wasn't they kind of took it aside and it's you know i thought probably because they were afraid like they're living this life a lot of them knew that alma and amulek were right but they were almost you know hiding away from it and so to have something so visible as you know zezrum come out and have this change of heart start to happen to think oh our whole world's going to start crumbling. So we got to tuck these guys away and get rid of them as quick as possible. Mm-hmm. To the point where they even yeah, chased uh, out a lot of people out of the yeah. city. And then they took their families and killed them. You know, it was like, we got to yeah. erase any notion that might threaten our power and our influence. We have to get rid of all of it. And I don't know. I, that must have been very difficult to stand by knowing that you could potentially stop it. And basically, you know, he says something like the spirit. Oh, yeah. In verse 11, the spirit constraineth me that I must not stretch forth mine hand. For behold, the Lord receiveth them up to himself in glory. Just to allow it to happen and know that the Lord's got a bigger plan here. It reminds me of, I don't know if I've shared this in this podcast before, but there's this story from Confucianism that is basically like this guy He's a farmer and his horse breaks its leg and his neighbor comes over and he's like, hey, I heard about your horse. That's terrible. You know, that, that's really bad news. I'm sorry about your horse. And he's like, yeah, it could be good. It could be bad. I don't know. I'm not sure. And he's like, what are you talking about? That's horrible. Your horse broke its leg. He's like, man, we'll see. 
And then the army came to recruit his son and couldn't recruit his son because the horse wasn't, wasn't functioning, right? They needed a horse that they needed the son to go with a horse and he couldn't go to war. And so he's like, well, I guess he, then the neighbor comes over and he's like, Hey, that's really awesome. Your son didn't have to go to war because your horse was hurt. And he's like, well, it could be good. It could be bad. You know, like everything that happens in our lives has a good aspect and a potentially bad aspect. And if we just look at it and say, oh my gosh, my horse broke its leg. It's the worst day of my life. Now I don't have a functioning horse. Now what am I going to do? I don't know. It just seems like there's this idea of the Lord is saying, let's temper this a little bit. Don't be so extreme. Not too high, not too low. Don't allow yourself to, you know, be over the top in either way. Um, Either so, so discouraged by life that you look at everything as being this is the the worst thing ever i mean what happens in the scripture obviously the killing of women and children that's horrific but even he's saying you know they will be received into the lord's glory i i am not going to make that decision for the lord the lord has a bigger plan for this and i think if we looked at our lives and say okay something is happening that i don't like or something's happening that's negatively affecting my life What's the bigger picture? How does this play out? This could be a good thing or it could be a bad thing. This pandemic we're going through, it's pretty terrible. There's a lot of people who are suffering because of it. Even if they're not sick, they're suffering because of loss of jobs or just the change in, you know, political climate or whatever it may be. But what's we don't know what the what the, what good could come out of this in the long run. It reminds me a little bit of when Joseph Smith was in Liberty Jail. And uh, he's kind of pleading and saying, how long are you going to allow these bad things happening to the saints, you know? And then he's given that great discourse on, you know, the, 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 the powers of the priests that are inseparably connected with the powers of heaven and that you can't have a righteous dominion. And then Heavenly Father kind of explains how he works. He works through long-suffering, patience, kindness, meekness, and that we as his priesthood holders should look for those things. I mean— this isn't easy. Alma and Amulek aren't saying here, oh, this is great. They're getting killed and suffered. This will work into a great... It's a terrible thing, and they're going through a horrible time, just as was Joseph Smith, just as people are every day in our lives. Um, bad things happen, and they hurt. But, you know, we can take comfort that in the grand scheme of things, the Lord is in control. And there are times where he will come down and divide the, the Red Sea, and there are times when uh, things will happen and they'll happen and it won't be until the second or third or fourth generation. You know, I'm not uh, a descendant from the pioneers, but every time I would read about the pioneers, I would just get so upset. I'm like, why do terrible things happen? Why can't, you know, in, in the times that they, they were going to fight back and decided not to fight back and, and, and it's very not my, it's not like my um, personality. Uh, I would very much retaliate in a lot of those scenarios. But then you look at how strong the church is today and how many blessings the members have received and their ancestors and, and the whole world for that matter. Because these individuals suffered through a terrible time and now all of us, have the fullness of the gospel in more, you know? And you 
I think about as we were as you was going about going through these chapters and you know reading through them in, in order, and you think about we've heard all these stories and these this vision and the story of what happens in verse eight here. And if you've seen the the videos the church puts out, like it portrays it pretty like hits you really to your core. But the idea of like what a humbling experience that you know Alma and Amulek had to go through as well and that we have to remember we're going to have to go through because they spend he spends all of chapter 13 talking about you know we're foreordained and we have this priesthood that's been you know it's passed down from all these great amazing prophets and Melchizedek you know all these things and the power of God is in us we just need to live righteously and all these things and here's how you live righteously but then to have to stand by and watch something that you don't potentially come back from you know your life is he's going to be changed from this and to know that at this moment at this time the lesson that they were learning but also the lesson they were teaching to everybody else is the humility of we have the power god has given us the power but god also controls how the power is used and there are times where you know we need to intervene and there are times where we don't and how humbling that would be to know that it's available and they've seen it be available. You know, what Alma saw in terms of the power of God is something that any one of us would probably love to have experienced any of the things, you know, one-tenth of what he got to experience from the hand of God. And then to stand by and humbly watch these things. And you think about how often that comes up, like why do bad things happen? Why do these bad things have to happen? And sometimes we know, and sometimes we learn, and sometimes we don't. And that's part of the process, you know, part of what makes this life so great and also so excruciating at sometimes is that we know so much and sometimes we know enough to make it even worse to watch the bad things happen as well. Yeah, I I think it was interesting that we just spent several chapters where they're giving these big long sermons to the people, teaching them all this stuff about the gospel. And then in verse 17 of chapter 14, and it came to pass that Amman Amulek answered him nothing. And he smote them again and delivered them to the officers to be cast into prison. You'd think, you would think, like my first reaction would be, if he's coming at me and he's berating me and telling me, do you not see that we're so incredible and that we're more powerful than you, that we're, you know, making all this happen. And then they just stand there in silence. Like, they don't say anything. And then they continue. He's hitting them on the face, spitting on them, you know. <laughs> doing all this stuff, mocking them for many days, it says in verse 22. Yeah. Like, and they just, they don't do anything. They just yeah. take it. How many well, of us the, would be like, you know what? I've had enough of this crap. I'm right. You're wrong. You all are going to burn, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm doing the right thing. No, he, they just sat it out. They just waited it out. It, it was a torture. It was torture in a way, right? They withheld food and water. They took their clothes from them. They bound them with strong cords. It was trying to humiliate them to make them uncomfortable. And and all of these things are a form of torture. It's not that they were, like, so knowledgeable that they were like, oh, we'll be okay. We just have to endure this. I mean, in verse 26, <laughs> he's like, how long shall we suffer these great afflictions, O Lord? Give us strength according to our faith, which is in Christ, even unto deliverance. They're looking at it saying, we, we're not going to retaliate. We know that's what you, that's what, it's not what you want us to do, but 
this is getting kind of unbearable. And I think it's at that time that the Lord's like, all right, now it's time to make this happen. You know, <laughs> now's the yeah. time to manifest the power of God. Now that you have shown restraint in, in the face of overwhelming opposition, now is the time that we're going to show them through the only means apparently that they'll understand uh, the power of God. I'm going to let you out. Uh, of your and, we're breaking the prison down. This is not, I mean, this is not Alma's way of doing things. Like he's not the guy that stands quietly by that. Take, he doesn't take it. He's the guy that will tell you, no, this is the way things are going to go. I mean, he speaks with power and authority. And so at the beginning, as I'm reading this and thinking, this is why are we acting this way? is he had to have either through directly from God just telling him to, to stand there and take it or through the spirit directing him. There's no way that all of a sudden he's going to change without being told this is how you need to do it. And so it almost makes it that much more powerful that you had to see them get to their breaking point to the point where, you know, and how many times, how many prophets have had to be in that point where they're like, like, Oh Lord, like how long? Okay. I did what you asked, but, come on and how many times have we been in that part where you know we've been told and and either we've been told directly to do something or through the scriptures or the spirit we've been told to do something and we do it and we do it and do it and we get to that breaking point and we think okay how long am i gonna have to do this and you and a lot of times it's because we needed to get to that point and you got to think for alma this was a point not only for the people around him but for him and amulek because of what comes next, you know, what we do here and that everything that's going to happen for the rest of their lives, they had to go through this as much as everyone else did. And so we need to remember that, that, you know, sometimes God puts us in a position of this because we need it. And sometimes it's because someone else does. And every once in a while, it's because the entire group does. And you are either by, you know, either good or bad, you're the vessel it's going to come from. Well, it may just be the experience that Alma and Amulek had to have to remind them, this is not you. This is not your power that's happening here. You aren't busting out of prison, okay? I am busting you out of prison. And I think that that's, that's a, a clear reminder. I think a lot of times when you, when you start thinking about, oh, the power of God that we wield, you know, let, you better check yourself, right? Remind yourself whose power this is and, and how it works. You are the, you're part of the circuit through which the power goes, but you are not the one that is all powerful, right? No one here, even President Nelson can't stand there and be like, that's right, I'm the prophet, I have all power. As soon as he starts thinking that way, it's gone, you know? <laughs> I think that that's a clear reminder for them that they can look back on later and say, you know, that we had this experience where we were we were held back by the Lord. And then when the Lord decided that it was time to be powerful in, in a physical way, it happened. It wasn't it's, us that made this happen. It's interesting to think about agency in this, because if at any part of the story, you could pause and say, what's the success criteria here? What What's going on? What? Is this is this correct? Because you you know Alma goes to these people and they throw him out immediately. That's doesn't seem like a successful event. Then he meets. He gets told to go back again, and he meets with Amulek. 
and then they build themselves up and then they go and they say, you know, what, the, the, you know, let's go do this. And they are met with lawyers and accusations and it's not going to be easy. And then finally, when they get people that start believing and they start getting through and they start trying to almost convert the chief guy to Caesar, you know, he starts to, to change his heart. Then they're bound, they're privily taken away, and then they're put through this torture chamber. And then you realize, well, we're in prison, but at least I, I think we got through to some people. What do you think, Amulek? And then they start killing those people. And you're like, oh, brother. And then after all this time, you're like, okay, let's get out. And the Lord delivers us. And then the the delivery method itself kills the people you're trying to convert, at least the greater opposition, the lawyers and the and the and the chief judge and those guys. And then and then you're here. And so I wonder who was this for? Well we'll see that they'll that the remainder individuals they're able to to create a church and, and so forth. But I think also the example that this is to us today, I mean there's there's a lot of opposition in this. Not all of it is caused by God's will. Some of it is caused by people's free agency, you know, and God continuously will support his servants and his priesthood holders. But that doesn't also exempt us from having difficult situations and having trials and even ourselves having to recommit ourselves and, and re re um reconvert you know like re recommit to the cause and, and be unwavering because if they weren't delivered and alma and amulek were killed would we say that that was uh, su- unsuccessful you know alma's here because his father was in the kind of a very similar scenario with king abinadi Abinadi came, and to the outside viewpoint, you may look, Abinadi was not successful. He went, and they yelled at him, and they murdered him, you know? And the one guy who ran off, they believe that King Noah sent his guards to kill him. So it's kind of a very, I don't know, I I find it really interesting because we often, I think we need to remember that we, we, we need to be strong. We need to endure things. We're going to get um, roughed up a little bit sometimes, even when we're doing the right thing. And it doesn't mean that we give up. It doesn't mean the Lord doesn't care. And it and bad things happening to people is not always the Lord could have intervened. I mean, he can, but sometimes it happens because people have agency as well. Yeah, in in chapter 15, we see kind of some of the immediate results of all of all of this um we see the people that were able to get out of Ammonihah before everything went down and um they're actually chased out right and they they have to let them know what happened to their families which that must have been a terrible <laughs> conversation and then then he talks about uh Zezrum that he's sick with a burning fever and basically it's he's having all these physical symptoms because of his uh guilt and his desire to to erase some of those mistakes that he's made um and then it's really simple alma and amulek show up and they say they take him by the hand 
Believest thou in the power of Christ and the salvation? He answered, Yea, I believe all the words thou hast taught. If thou believest in the redemption of Christ, thou canst be healed. So they're like, look, if you believe, you can be healed. This is a, a priesthood blessing, essentially, that they're giving him, you know. Uh, that's that's what our priesthood blessings are. Essentially, we state authority, and then it's kind of like, here's a blessing, but it's a, based on your faith and and the faith of the person blessing and also the faith, the faith of the person receiving the blessing. Um, probably more so that side. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to me. You, you know, you think about any time that we've been in the same situation. You know, once you receive and get that that personal manifestation of okay, here's the truth, and here's what I've been doing wrong, and that idea that he was physically ill is not lost on me. How many times have I felt physically ill because I know I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing, and you know that. And then to say, you know, the words that Alma is saying are very, the words they're saying are very similar to the words that I think a lot of us have said that going back to be like, okay, why do I feel this way? You know, like, I feel this way because I know that I'm not, or I haven't done what I'm supposed to. And then to thankfully we have the knowledge of, okay, here's how we can feel whole again. And that it is through the belief and the faith and knowing that Christ is there. And that regardless of how bad it gets, Christ is still going to be there. So, you know, you can be the guy that's doing all the horrible things, but Christ is still going to be there. He's not going to give up on you. He didn't give up on Zezrin. He's not going to give up on you either, which is really cool. Definitely. I thought it was interesting that in, uh, you know, kind of uh, 15, but as to the people that were in the land of Ammonihah, they were yet they yet remained a hard-hearted and stiff-necked people, even after seeing this miraculous escape, you know, and deliverance, which is a sign that signs will never be enough. If right. you're an unbeliever, signs will never be enough. And they repented out of their sins, ascribing that all the power of Alma Emanuel to the devil, you know. For they were of the profession of Nehor, and they did not believe in the repentance of their sins, you know. And and so you see, like, in there was this little group of people, even though Nehor was taken care of back in the beginning of Alma. Um, I think it was Alma's father. I think Nehor was the one that smit this smote. Gideon. Gideon. Yeah. Gideon, being older in years, was unable to withstand the blows. It's and 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 so forth. Um, but even, even these people did not recognize what a miracle had transpired, you know, and they continue to be hard hearted and say, nope, your power's from the devil, you're, you know, this and that. And, and so it kind of points out that if it can happen to Alma and Amulek, it can happen to us, even after we've borne our testimony, even after we, we, you know, Someone may just not believe. They they may just nope. That's false. No golden plates. There's no way. Where are they? Show them to me. You know, it, it will never be enough if your heart is an unbelieving heart. You know, if if you won't allow the spirit in to to witness to you. Well, yeah, it, it takes a bigger change than that, and I think that goes into like in verse seventeen. It says, therefore, after Alma having established the church at Sidon. 
seeing a great check, yea, seeing that the people were checked as to the pride of their hearts and began to humble themselves before God. This is like literally check yourself, you know, <laughs> like make sure that your pride is checked, that you, you are humbling yourselves before God. And he was making sure that even after they, they'd run away from, from the badness of Ammonihah, that they were kind of on their own, the people had been converted and all that, they had established churches, it was still like, we need to make sure that we check our pride and that we don't start looking down on others because we're doing the right things and they're not, or whatever it may be. That they worship before God before the altar, and watching and praying continually that they might be delivered from Satan and from death and from destruction. Yeah, we made it out of there, and we're in a better place now, and we've established the church, but we're still not out of the woods. There's still a bigger picture question of salvation, right? You might be on the path, but you still got to keep walking. They endure to the end part is what they're in at that point. I thought it was interesting in verse in chapter 16... Um, that the Lamanites come and attack Ammonihah, and they begin to slay the people and destroy the city. And you look back on when Alma was sent there originally, and why was the Lord so insistent that he go to Ammonihah? It might have been because of this very reason, that these attacks were happening every so often. The Lord knew that this was imminent, and he's like, there's people in there that need to hear this. There's people in there that will be converted and will be changed, and this needs to happen before they're attacked. There's people that won't, right? There's people that will ignore you, and they'll get their their reward for that. But uh, in verse 3, Nephites, before the Nephites could raise a sufficient army to drive them out of the land, they had destroyed the people who were in the city of Ammonihah, and also some around the borders of Noah, and taken others captive into the wilderness. Basically, they were wiped out, you know? Yeah. And I think that when you're looking at things in retrospect... Alma needed to go there because there ended up being people as part of that church in Sidon that were from Ammonihah and would never have joined and never been converted had he not gone back that second time. Well, it's, yeah. and Lehi, Lehi kind of tells this to his children. He says, if, if you turn away, then the seed of thy brethren will be a scourge unto your seed, you know? Yeah. And, and it's kind of like this. And then he loving, uh, this isn't funny, but they gave this event the name. That's how bad it was. They called it the desolation of Nehors. Yeah. For they were of the profession of Nehor who were slain and their lands remained desolate. You know, so it was it was a massacre, you know. Not only that, but it was like it even says later, I think, that they didn't inhabit the land for a long time after that. Like no. It was really just not only were they killed and then they took over that, but it was just like there was nothing there. It was wiped out. Yeah, and it kind of like fits into that narrative that's been going on for 10 or more chapters that it's very like it's a cycle. These things aren't unique to what's happening in 89 BC. It's this, this whole lesson that we have that there's God, that there's he teaches us we are to follow there's like accountability in it but he also loves us and there's a plan so it's it feels like to me this is that continuing back from even chapter 13 of this is not just this moment in time this is part of this is a big picture that has gone on for the eternities before will go on for the eternities after 
And you got to think about the writers of the Book of Mormon and even, you know, as, as it was getting compiled together of how almost frustrated it would be to be putting these things together, to be like, haven't we already had this? Like, as he's being directed by God and God's like, okay, I want you to put this section in. He's like, why? Like, we have dealt with this. Can we, didn't we deal with this in like the second part of the second book of Nephi? We're going to do it again. And, and yeah, we're going to do it again and over and over because this is the way it works. And this is how, you know, we learn and how God teaches us. And, and without that, you know, it can be frustrating to think that, oh my gosh, I have to go through this again. And whenever I feel like I'm doing that and thinking, why am I going through this cycle again to think back and go, okay, what did I miss the first time? So obviously I have to go through this again because it did not hit home with me enough that I made a big enough change that I don't have to go through this again. And that to me, you know, is also the big part of the story of Alma, you know, that that's the change we have to make in our lives that it's no matter where you're at, you know, you can, you can be one of the, the head wicked guys, you know, and, and his dad and be, it doesn't matter because you can continue to change. There's always a path out, a path back. Even if you fall off the path, there's a path back. And that's what I think is kind of like interesting about that whole, it's desolated. And it doesn't say that people never lived there again. It's that they didn't for a long time. And guess what? People came back and guess what? Eventually at some point, probably the same lessons were taught again to those people. It's, it's very similar. Like it reminded me when you were talking about um, Jacob, when he calls, he quotes Sinas with the allegory of the olive tree in uh, Jacob 5 because he's kind of the message there is the 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 lord of the vineyard wants good fruit and if he's going to get it from the old tree or the new tree or grafting this tree or that tree or dunging over here and it's every possible combination to get good fruit you know um which to us it kind of tells us we're not predestined to go to heaven or hell it's up to us we have agency and in in whatever situation and and that was one of the things i really loved about that uh, chapter jacob five was um when when the servants say hey this one is in poor ground and he says i know it's in poor ground but then those ended up bringing forth the best fruit you know good fruit you know and, and sometimes we, we ourselves can feel like our situation, we're stuck in, you know, we didn't have ideal parents or, or ideal family or, or maybe we do and now we, we lost them or, or, or we're in a different part of the world or, or a bad state or terrible community, didn't get a chance to go to school or, you know, all of these things. It's with the Lord, he can help us bring forth good fruit and prosper, you know, and, 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 you know, that, that's the thing is no tragedy with the Lord will ever be permanent. I like, um, on chapter 16, verse 18, because it kind of explains very specific things that the priest of the church or the elders of the church or priests went about teaching. And it says, and they did go forth among the people, did preach against lying, deceiving, envying, and stripes, and malice, revilings, and stealing, robbing, plundering, murdering, committing adultery. And it's kind of that these are some very specific terms 
And the thought I had was, one is we should stay away from those things <laughs> um, ourselves. And also we should support causes that help teach these things. You know, a lot of our interpersonal struggles as, a, as, as countries and communities and things come when individuals value these things at different levels. Uh, we're okay with a little bit of lying. We're okay with more. We're okay with none, you know. And and even in relationships, if you're not aligned into what values to follow, it makes it hard to be really good, close friends. And a lot of these things, you, you injure others. You injure other people and injure yourselves. If, if you treat your neighbor with envying and deceiving and strife and malice with violence. I don't, I'm not sure what strifes means. Strifes. Uh, it kind of feels like you're combative, continuously combative. Find a reason to be combative at everything. And if we kind of, if, if this was the remedy or the preemptive things that they would go teach to avoid all this pride, and stiff-neckedness and hardness, um, how much should we be thinking about these things within ourselves and say, am I envying a lot? Am I lying? Am I stealing and, and, and murdering and committing adultery? You know, the big ones we can automatically say, yeah, those are bad. But it's the little ones that start to creep in, and then the big ones tend to happen, you know? I think in verse 19 and 20, um, holding forth the things which must shortly be must shortly come, yea, holding forth the coming of the Son of God, his sufferings and death, and also the resurrection of the dead. And then they kind of are like, okay, so when when is this going to happen, right? When, when, this is nice and all, but <laughs> like, what about us? When is this going to happen? Um, and then they tell them they were taught that he would appear unto them after his resurrection. And this the people did hear with great joy and gladness. And I think that that's really, when we're talking about all these little, I guess, smaller commandments or, or advice we're being given to live a Christ-like life, that's the bigger picture, right? Why, why don't we deceive? Why is it not okay to have malice and reviling towards one another? Because guess what? The Lord's coming. And when he comes, you want to be on, on his right hand. And for us, it's like, okay, well, why do we keep the Sabbath day holy? Why do we pay tithing? Why do we um, do our ministering? Because there's a bigger picture to all of this. It's not just so that you can say, yeah, I did my ministering. Or guess what? I go to, uh, I pay my tithing faithfully, and that's makes me a great person. That's really, that's fine. But the bigger picture is why we do all of that. It's so that we can qualify for salvation in the end. And for them, they received that with great joy and gladness. I think for them, it was like, Oh, that's why you keep talking about all this. You know, <laughs> like that's why you keep reminding us to, to not do all these little things because the savior is going to come and he's going to come visit us. And I, I don't want to be thinking, gosh, I, I really wasted my time. I should have been a better person. I want to be able to enjoy that and view that coming as, this incredible occasion of, of liberty, you know, liberation. Yeah, and if he and if he doesn't come within your lifetime, 
you will surely be taken home to that God who gave you life when you die. Into his so rest. So either way, you're going to have to come before him and be accountable. Account for the things that you've done. You know, And that one is much quicker, I think, than most. That one can happen at any time. You know, um, sometimes we think of the second coming of, I got time, I got time where when we die, whenever that happens, that time is up, you're going and you're going to go to, to, to meet uh, your savior and, and, and kind of have a little, probably a one-on-one of some sort. Right? Well, and you think about in, as they talk about how, how often before Christ comes, they talk about how he'll come soon. You know, they're talking about how he'll soon come in 600 BC and he'll soon come in 300 BC. And now we're in 89 or so, and it'll be soon again. And for some, you, you wonder, like, did they really know that it was going to be that soon? Like, the it seems like the efficiency is getting tighter. People are really purposefully doing more. And I, I love the, the way that God starts building things and preparing things in a different way in ch- verse... 14 it's like four lines what really stood out to me out of this whole section about the time we're in now that as many would hear their words unto them they did impart the word of god without any respect of persons continually so so how often were they preaching are we preaching even to people that we think will want to hear it or are we ensuring that we have equity and unity to just people that we think want to have it or should have it and not that it's no this is for everybody it doesn't matter who you are we don't care who it is and to me it feels like you know i believe that we were started come follow me years ago because we were going to be in this day today is it coincidental that this is the thing they're talking about this week because of where we're at today you know that this isn't just for us this is for everyone and to do it with everyone and continually so they, they didn't stop so they're going to keep going. And the pivot that this takes, you know, this chapter ends and pivots next into the sons of Mosiah and like how it's, you know, abruptly we come into the story and abruptly we go back out. But the message doesn't change that this is for everybody all the time. You look at, uh, that made me think of, do you ever think there's a point where you, as a parent especially, will say, I've I've shown enough affection for my child. I've told them I love them enough. I've already told I, I've you. Taught, I I I taught them enough. <laughs> There's no reason to teach them or or help them improve in any way. I'm I'm done. 32, 32, they hit 32, I'm done. No. You're like every chance you get, hey, how are you? How are things? What can I help you? And maybe as you know, as a baby, it consumes a lot of your time. But even as they grow, they have school going. How's that? You know, anything I can do to help? You know, anything? And, and you look at, and our Father in Heaven is the perfect parent, you know. And he wants us to. And so that's where I think when you said they continuously met and, and, and did things. And, and um, even before, it says the saints would meet often. You know, to to discuss things, to rejoice, to to strengthen each other, and that's something that I don't know that it's you prepare because there's a huge battle coming, or you continuously prepare because you love each other. 
and you take joy in the fact that if we can be a little bit better, a little bit nicer, a little bit more Christ-like, isn't that better for everybody, you know? Are we all just happier? Yeah, and how much, you know, love that even for us today that clearly these prophets had back in the day for us, you know, how they talk about it constantly, how they've seen our day, they've seen us, they've seen what we do and the love they have for us and the the thoughts of it that, you know, they even Nephi talks about the last, one of the last things he says is I pray continually for us, for the people we serve, for the people around him. And you know that he's not just talking about his little family and his brothers and sisters. He's talking about everyone, all that are around him that, and it, that's how we have to look at it with our mindset that this isn't just for those around us, for everyone. You know, I had a weird thought. It was kind of a funny thought. And so I started laughing when, uh, when you mentioned that, <laughs> that was oh, so when you mentioned, yeah, that, uh, how many times do they have to repetitively write this? And I can just picture Moroni just being like, getting his nice set of new plates. Here's the things I'm going to write. And then he sees our day and then he's like, grab the other plates, bring them all back. Let's just copy and paste real quick. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, and to me, it's like, <laughs> I think of how many times a day where I'm just like, are you kidding me? And we, we don't think that they were, I mean, at the end of the day, a prophet, you know, given all that he has is still just a person who is probably frustrated by the same things we are all the time. And like we get asked questions and I had a question from one of my kids this week. And my thought was like, we have had this discussion. I can't tell you how many times. And in my head, I wanted to scream at this eight year old and be like, what am I speaking English to you? Are we speaking like how many, how do I have to describe this to you differently that you can't go and do this horrible thing? Not and horrible for an eight year old, you know, he's not burning buildings down, but it, and like you said, just be nice to the people around you. But, and to remember that even, even at his level, it's going to take that time. And so even at my level, you know, pushing 40, I'm still doing that. And how many times is, is God like, Brian, what are you doing? We've had this discussion. Like I've been plain to you. I've given you scriptures that explain it. I've given you videos that explain the scriptures that explain it. Cause apparently that wasn't working. You can listen to it. You have teachers teaching your whole life. I am testified by the spirit and you're still going to go do that. And to think like, okay, but I, he still is there for me. He's not walking away. He's not giving up. And, you know, we can't either. How easy would it be for us to give up? How easy would it be for him to give up? And then he just stops. It's kind of like when Mosiah, when he says, when you've come to the knowledge of the truth in your own, it's kind of, he's kind of saying, when you realize how much you need the Savior and how much you'll always be indebted to him, then your heart is full for love for everyone. And you're not quick to judge others. Because you think, man, I'm just happy I can be redeemed somehow, right? I think that that's, that's the biggest message that, that the Savior ever taught was that he he never really concerned himself because he, he was perfect. He wasn't concerned, am I going to be, am I going to achieve salvation? 
that every example he gave us was helping others to achieve salvation. And it's like, if you don't concern yourself about, you know, I got I to gotta get mine, I got to make sure that I get mine, and instead you focus on helping other people, you will inherently do the right things, and you will inherently be in good standing with God. Right? If you're if you're concerning yourself with helping others and talking about the the, the gospel with them and sharing it with them and, and doing so continually, like it says, then you won't really have to be all that concerned about am I am I doing the right thing? Yeah, you are. You're sharing the gospel and you're living a good life. The Book of Mormon is truly the keystone of our religion, and that a man and woman will get nearer to God by abiding by its precepts than by any other book. And if you then go and do what he would have you do, your power to trust him will grow. And in time, you will be overwhelmed with gratitude to find that he has come to trust you. There is no end to the good we can do, to the influence we can have with others. Let us not dwell on the critical or the negative. Let us pray for strength. Let us pray for capacity and desire to assist others. Let us radiate the light of the gospel at all times and in all places, that the Spirit of the Redeemer may radiate from us. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path back home to our heavenly parents and be with those we love. He invites us to come, follow me.